there is no comp for being able to pick something up and look at it. And the marketing, the way that the industry has sort of like crossover of marketing and algorithm has cut out so much of discovery. So with a movie theater, you can see a poster in a light box. You can see a description on a website. You can see a description in what would have been a newspaper and to think, oh, that looks interesting. It is not like marketed specifically to you because of the bottom line. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Rebecca Polly, Deputy Editor at Box Office Pro, the pulse of theatrical exhibition. I am joined here today by box office analyst Jesse Rifkin. Jesse, it's been a few months since you've been on the podcast. Have you been? And more importantly, I guess, what have you seen in theaters recently? I've been good. Uh, the last movie I saw in theaters was The Creator, which uh, stunning visually, amazing special effects, possible uh, best visual effects Academy Awards nominee contender there. The actual film, though, I'd give, yeah, I'd give, yeah, I'd give, I'd give very, very mixed reviews. Next film I'm seeing is next week, and I'm going to see Taylor Swift's Eras Tour concert film, me and tens of millions of my closest friends. Yep. Well, we'll be asking you about that uh, later on in the episode. Once we uh, we go over the box office, trying to suss out uh, what number Taylor Swift is actually going to get to uh, in her opening weekend, we have an interview with uh, three people, actually. One of them is the director of the film Only in Theaters, which is about uh, the history and the legacy of the Lemley Theater cinema chain, which has been essential to keeping art house and our house community alive in, in Los Angeles. Greg Lemley, we also have uh, on, the, on the podcast today. And returning guest Maggie McKay, I don't know if you'll remember, I think she's been on one or two times before, but she was uh, in the process of funding for and building uh, in Eagle Rock, Los Angeles, Vidiots. It's a video store slash, uh, slash screening room. So it was fun to, to delve into to Lemley and, and, and to the importance of, I mean, I know we're not the physical media podcast, but I feel like there's a lot of overlap between movie theater people and people who hold on to physical media and still like it. So it was, it's a good conversation and pretty much tailor-made for Box Office Podcast. That and more in a bit. In news items, the big piece of news kind of in our inside baseball industry area is that out of the NATO Fall Summit last week, we do have some new NATO executive board members. Newly elected as the chair of the executive board of directors at NATO is Bob Bagby, CEO and president of B&B Theaters, the largest family-owned cinema chain in the North American market. As vice chair, we have Harkins Theaters president and CEO, Mike Bowers. And for the Cinema Foundation, uh, which of course, among all it does, most recently has spearheaded the National Cinema Day, Santico's Theaters CEO, Tim Handron, was elected chair of the Cinema Foundation. And as vice chair, there is Salt Lake Film Society's uh, Tori A. Baker, who is retaining her role. One last bit of news uh, we have here regarding the Taylor Swift concert film, The Eras Tour. Not out yet as, as we're recording. It'll, it'll be a few days till it comes out. It'll be a few hours until it comes out. If you're listening within this episode, it comes out on Thursday, but it doesn't matter. Already, the film has passed the $100 million mark in pre-sales. So that's not just AMC, which is distributed with film. It's, you know, AMC and all the other 
exhibitors uh, that are working with variance films to program. But yeah, I'm, I don't have my tickets. I kind of want to see something else just to see what it's like. And, and any cinema owners out there who are planning any parties or events, yeah, you like shoot us a DM on LinkedIn or something, you know, send something to numbers at boxoffice.com because uh, we, we really we really are interested in seeing the creative ways that, that the cinema community uh, rises to the enormous demand <laughs> that comes from the Taylor Swift Swifty community. So Jesse, as uh, you covered box office over this weekend, it's kind of a calm before the storm. We're out of the kind of September doldrums and not yet to the craziness that Taylor Swift is going to going to bring to the box office next weekend. Uh, the main release out, uh, out wide from Universal was Exorcist Believer, first in a planned uh, three-part series from director David Gordon Green, who did a Halloween series for Universal uh, a few years back. What was the performance here? Well, as you just mentioned, they've already greenlit it as a trilogy. They That might have been a mistake. <laughs> it, it opened at $26 million, which is on the lower end of our 24 to $32 million prediction range. We'll see how it holds on. Maybe it will end up uh, doing great in the, in the long run, but it opened below several other major post-pandemic horror sequels, including Halloween Ends, Scream 6, The Nun 2, Insidious the Red Door. And Halloween Ends came out day and date. Like, it came out below a film that went day and date. I mean, granted, that was, Halloween Ends was the third one in the franchise, so it had a little bit more, you know, interest building up to it, but yeah. But still, that, that was released simultaneously in cinemas and on Peacock. That made about $40 million. This had theatrical exclusivity, but it only made about $26 million. That's 34% below. Moving on down the top Five. At spot number two, we have from Paramount, Paw Patrol, The Mighty Movie. How do you assess the box office for this one, Jesse? Because it's kind of like, I feel like Paw Patrol is a franchise that parents know about. And as a franchise, you know, they know the names, all the dogs and the stuffed animals and stuff. And then as someone who does not have kids, I'm just kind of like, yeah, Paw Patrol, that sounds like a thing. So <laughs> what, what were we expecting from it, given the fact that it is a sequel to a first Paw Patrol film that came out? And how did it perform? Yes, this was its sophomore frame. It fell minus 48%, which is actually slightly better than the, the prior film, 2021's original Paw Patrol, the movie, which fell slightly more at, at 49%. How does the Paw Patrol franchise, I mean, how much of, of that uh, box office gross from the first one came from international markets? Like, is it is this a case of something that just has a popularity globally that can maybe pad a medium performance in North America? Not that we're saying that that's the case here, but... Yeah, definitely. Actually, the original film, again, from two years ago, earned 72% of its global gross from overseas. So far, this one has earned... 55% from overseas, which is less, but that's a little misleading because some major overseas markets still have yet to release, including Spain, France, UK, and Japan. Polar opposite from Paw Patrol in third place, Saw X. I have heard good things. It's had better word of mouth than, than the other ones. It's coming off that debut weekend last week. I mean, it, it's actually doing pretty well compared to the other films in the franchise regarding that second week drop. Yes. So again, this is the 10th film in the franchise. That's why it's called Saw X, X, the Roman numeral for, for 10. And this was its sophomore weekend. 
It dropped only 55%, which is actually better and milder than six of the nine. For a horror movie, that's not bad. They tend to be really front-loaded, especially this time of year. Right? Yeah, like, actually, yeah. Okay, so that's a, that's a solid performance. Maybe we'll see continued. Uh, you might even say it's a saw lid performance. I might I might say that, but you are far more likely to say it, Jesse. <laughs> <laughs> then in fourth place, we have a film that both of us have seen, The Creator, in its second week, down 57% to 6.1 million domestic. And then at number five for the second consecutive week, congratulations to our friends at Fathom Events, who traditionally uh, do event cinema programming. They have moved into specialty distribution with this film, The Blind, about the the patriarch from the Duck Dynasty TV show. It came in at spot number five for this second week in a row. Yeah, and that's... Despite having nowhere near the screen count of other releases. Yeah, here's how low that screen count was. It was in about 1,300 theaters this weekend. That's less than one-third of Paw Patrol. So as a result, it was a surprise when it opened in fifth place last weekend. I think it was also a surprise when it stayed in the top five this weekend. It dropped only 28%. That's pretty mild. For comparison, for a few other faith-based Christian-themed films of the past year or two, 28% is a better hold than American Underdog, which fell 33%, Father Stew, which dropped 38%, or Jesus Revolution, which declined 46%. So this is holding on pretty well. Wow. And the weekend gross here that we're looking at, you know, 3.2 million, it's not huge numbers when you compare it to, you know, spots one through four on the list. But, you know, we don't need every film to be reaching those tens of millions every week. You know, it's smaller films like this that are targeted uh, to a more niche audience that will spread the word and get other people to to come in. That's what the industry needs in order to remain healthy. Speaking of scrappy films that are uh, making their way into the market despite everything stacked against them, uh, no, I'm kidding. It's a Taylor Swift film that was always going to be an absolute behemoth. We know it's already grossed $100 million in pre-sales. The question here, Jesse, I, I think that probably a lot of uh, a lot of people in exhibition and elsewhere asking is, is this going to be a hundred million opening weekend? I think yes. Now, this what I'm about to say is just anecdotal. It's not based on statistics or anything. But I got my ticket for this upcoming Saturday, and basically every showtime was sold out or a, only a single digit number of seats left. We've had other big concert films, you know. Usually lately, it's been event cinema releases from from outfits like Fathom Events or Trafalgar. There have been recent ones that were successful from like BTS and, and Metallica, but those aren't getting the wide releases. We've had one from Justin Bieber in like 2012 that, that is currently the record holder, I believe, for a concert film. I don't know what it made, but I know that Taylor Swift is going to break that record on its opening weekend. I mean, it's it's tough to predict this one because there's there's really nothing that is comparable to it. No, as you mentioned, Justin Bieber's 2011 concert film, Never Say Never, is the highest grossing concert film theatrically ever at 73 million. Michael Jackson's uh, posthumous 2009 film, This Is It, is just a hair behind at 72 million. Okay, so Taylor We're Swift's already earned, out-earned both of those. <laughs> Yes, earn out earn both of those lifetime grosses in its opening weekend alone. We are we are really in uncharted waters yeah. here. What I'm interested in, in in seeing here is something that's going to contribute to its box office domination. It is screening in IMAX screens in about 45 markets. The numbers we have are about 625. 
IMAX screens. So yeah, I'm curious to see how this film is going to do specifically in premium formats, whether that's IMAX or proprietary large format or like, you know, whatever the case is, I bet it's going to be absolutely bonkers. In terms of other uh, other films hitting uh, hitting the market, we were supposed to have Exorcist Believer come out this upcoming week. Obviously, they uh, moved back from their Friday the 13th date to get out of Taylor Swift's way. We really have n- nothing going on in terms of counter-programming this week. There's a, like a re-release of The Hunger Games coming up. There's a Fathom Events Dragon Ball Z event coming up, but no one wanted to go toe-to-toe with Taylor Swift. So thank you so much, uh, as always, for joining us here. And after this short break, uh, we will be hearing from Raphael Savage, director of Only in Theaters, along with documentary subject Greg Lindley and exhibitor Maggie Mackey of Vidiots. I feel weird saying this. You can check it out on DVD or on streaming now, but go to onlyintheaters.com. It is still doing the kind of festival roadshow circuit, so Only in Theaters could still be playing in theaters near you. We'll be back to hear more about that film right after this break. So, Raphael, you started off uh, with this movie kind of not knowing what the story of it was going to be. And it was kind of about the the Lemley chain, the Lemley family and the legacy. But uh, then it turned into you chronicling the possibility of the chain being sold. And then the pandemic happens and you're, you're doing a completely different movie. You said two and a half years you'd been been working on this all told. How did you uh, how did you come to you know, develop this as a feature in the first place? It started as a sort of a, the legacy story kind of captured my imagination initially. The le- the fact that there's been a Lemley in the movie business since there's been a movie business um, and, and this sort of tie back to the origins of Hollywood. Carl Lemley was a first cousin, obviously a founder of Universal Pictures, also the man who basically went up against the Edison Trust and, and went to the Supreme Court and obviously gave us independent cinema because of him, you know, Greg's grandfather and great uncle both started this theater in 1938. They, you know, have had this giant outsized influence. And the theaters, that is the Lumley Theaters, have inspired so many people. And and they are in Los Angeles, you know, not just a movie theater, but really sort of a cultural institution. But they're also primarily a family business. And that's kind of what pulled me in. I had no idea what I was signing up for, at least initially, and, and I didn't know it was going to take this long. But what happened was that as we were working on this, not only did a series of kind of remarkable and extraordinary things occur, but what also happened is that we backed into this larger conversation about the future of exhibition and where we, where are we and you know Greg and I have done a lot of interviews and and I and I was so excited to actually sort of introduce Maggie into this conversation because Maggie did the unbelievable thing of kind of opening a movie theater in the midst or sort of right as the pandemic kind of settled. And and this was extraordinary, not just because of what she's done and how she's programmed it and how well it's been received, but it's also been tied to then this physical media, which has then been this, you know, the origins of their origin story that is, you know, DVDs and VHS, you know, cassettes. And and so that's a component of, of their business model. And these theaters are so important and that they thrive is so important for for audiences for filmmakers and in this case here you have two extraordinary people who are who run theaters who program them so i i just thought it was an interesting opportunity for all of us to talk you know particularly because of all the ties 
Greg, I mean, the film kind of ends right around the time when you were legally able to to open up to moviegoers once again. Yeah, New York and LA, I think like you could open gyms before movie theaters. It was, uh, it was, it was kind of, it was really nuts. How's the time since then been? Obviously, for a while there, there were not many films that hit theaters, but hopefully it's, uh, it's bounced back to a certain extent. Yes, I mean, it has bounced back. Um, we're still not seeing the same number of wide release films as there were pre-pandemic. And there's probably a number of factors that are involved there. Um, and then, yeah, there's also certain audience segments that have not returned. So um, the older audience, which historically was, you know, very supportive of art films is, is, I think, you know, an audience that probably had greater COVID fears during that initial time of the pandemic, of, of the reopening. Um, certainly the fact that we had, you know, two major waves after that with the Delta wave and the Omicron wave scared many of them, you know, back into their homes. And, and look, and, and I think it is also an audience that probably was not familiar with streaming beforehand and discovered it. And they're maybe playing with their new little toy. But I think ultimately the, you know, the better experience of seeing a movie in movie theaters is going to win out over time. So for those of us that have the ability to get through this, uh, we're going to see a return to, you know, movie going, the you know, not exactly the way it used to be, but we're going to see, we're going to see more movies in movie theaters. We're already seeing a return to having an exclusive theatrical window, which we did not have for all of 2021. And we're going to rebuild this business. We're now two years past the reopening and we still get some people that are coming back for the first time to see a movie in a movie theater that now they have not been in for three or four years. And they're reminded about how wonderful this is. And, you know, we hope that every time someone comes back that they are going to, you know, that that's not just one thing that they tried and they're going back into their, you know, into their streaming world, that they are back and seeing movies. But it, it has to happen one moviegoer at a time. One of my favorite parts of, uh, of, the, of the documentary was seeing, you know, all the, the GMs and, and just the people who were so, their lives had been so touched and impacted by their time at, at Lemley. And it's, uh, you know, that that really is, it's, it's not just about a building and a screen and a movie. No, it, it, it is a whole community. And, and for the staff at the theater, that's, you know, their family in many cases or as close to family as you, as you get. And their regular patrons who they know and recognize. And, uh, you know, so all those interactions are, are, are really super important. Yes, I can understand for patrons who are coming back for the first time. It may be difficult. Are they dealing with understaffed theaters because it's hard to find employees? Or is the theater understaffed because, you know, we do need to have certain economy of scale, you know, theaters that aren't operating the same hours as they used to operate before. So maybe it's harder to find a showtime. These aren't easy. You know, these are problems. Uh, the solutions aren't necessarily easy, but there are solutions. And certainly getting more people back is going to have a feedback loop. Distributors are going to advertise again. Uh, they've stopped at, I mean, you open the LA Times, you don't see any ads. And when you don't see any ads in the LA Times, all of a sudden you're not seeing reviews in the LA Times. I wonder how that happened. <laughs> so how are people finding out what movies, you know, to see? There's a lot of chicken and egg stuff here. And we just, you know, it's going to be, like I said, one step at a time. Uh, towards getting it back to to what it used to look like pre-pandemic. Yeah, movie going begets movie going. That is correct. I mean, one of the things, I mean, it was brought up uh, in the documentary, you know, TV was supposed to have killed movie theater and then, you know, any number of things are supposed to have uh, killed the movie going experience off, including home video and DVDs and VHS. I mean, that was, that was a 
perceived as a big threat to cinema. Now physical media has also kind of had a comeback. There's a lot of talks as streaming kind of, you know, they put stuff up, they take stuff away. You have to be a member of like 18 different streaming platforms to get everything you want. Like it's not the replacement for cable that it was was touted as early in the day. Just as, you know, someone who I'm personally interested in in physical media, what's the reception been from people since you got Vidiots opened and got the crowd started to come in? I mean, we can point to hard data, which is that we're renting over 1,300 movies a week. So that's the answer. People are bringing their families in. We've got little kids. Oh, nice. Renting movies, bringing them back, talking to our clerks, going to the movies, full groups of teenagers getting dropped off by a parent with their babysitting money in the exact same way that I grew up going to the movies. And it's not nostalgic and it's not a throwback. It's not a flash in the pan. It's something that people missed and they want, and it's very vibrant and totally alive. There's nothing sort of sentimental about it. I mean, people are sentimental and it's a very gratifying experience. You know, I thought initially in the first week we were open, we broke all of our physical media rental records. So within the first two days, we'd rented more movies than our founders had at their peak in 1985. And their peak, the busiest day they ever had was right around the 92 uprising or any kind of big weather event outside of earthquakes, which are unpredictable. But usually those are the big rental waves. And we broke all those records within the first week of opening in June, 2023. But I thought, oh, this is, feels like a novelty. They're going to come and do it. They're going to forget to return their stuff. They might rent again in a few months over winter break. But, you know, the point was to make the library accessible to the public, no matter what. And we have all these other revenue streams, the theater, the beer and wine, the sponsorship, the marketing opportunities for distributors and studios. And that will keep the video store open no matter what. I was wrong. They rented, they returned, they rent, they return, coming back. It's worked. We've only increased our numbers. We started at about a thousand a week. We went to 1200. Now we, we could even be over 1400 a week. Now I don't know. And it's not just movies. There's certainly the numbers are pointing into the direction of movies that are very hard to find movies that are not streaming, but people are definitely renting TV series that would cost. We had a teenage kid who she's a regular. She's one of my favorites. She loves anime to rent a series that she is obsessed with on a streaming service would cost her $3 or $4 an episode. She's rented the entire series for that same amount of money. So, which is not equitable, not affordable, and not sustainable. And it's excluding countless numbers of people who just simply can't afford that. So now what we've done is created this super fan so that when there's a new anime movie that Greg programs, she's going to be tracking on it. She's going to go see it at Lemley. It's your 
you're creating an ecosystem and supporting an ecosystem and then creating the next generation of fans who are the only hope for this art form. And that's what we were hoping we would see of Vidiots. And now we've proven out that it works. Yeah, it's like the audience is, is out there. You just have to, I mean, it's funny you should talk about, you know, anime and, and that sort of thing. Over the past few years, we've definitely seen, you know, anime films and concert films and like Bollywood films and in some cases just doing incredibly well theatrically. Greg, there's definitely been, well, there were not that many movies to show. Uh, a lot of exhibitors kind of got mixed up the formula a bit in terms of in terms of programming experience experimenting with uh, with different genres to try to reach some of those audiences who who were able to come back how's your approach to programming changed since before all this i don't know that it has i mean we've always wanted to you know we, we want to present films to the audience uh, and we want to present uh, things that we like and things that we think they'll like we're probably a little more engaged with event cinema programming right now because if you do show something and it, it feels like it's, you know, this is your one opportunity, people are inclined to make it a, a priority to come out. All of a sudden, when a film is playing for a full week with three shows a day, oh, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. I'll get to it. And they never get to it. So using event cinema, you know, as an opportunity, you know, is, is uh, something that we're doing a lot more of. Uh, and if you want to look at like 2022, uh, a, a hit film like RRR, which of course, you know, played in the Bollywood circuit and then sort of disappeared and then was brought back as an event cinema program. And the response was so amazing that it turned back into a regular release. And now it's morphed back to an event cinema. I'm sure Maggie could put RRR on, you know, tomorrow and, and, you know, draw a full house of people who just want to see it again. We've been doing it every other month. We sell out in a couple hours. The whole time it was on Netflix. Yeah, granted, dubbed version, Hindi, not Tagala, you know, but still it was there. I mean, it's a movie you have to see in a movie. I mean, I watched it on Netflix just because I, you know, it's fun no matter what. But, and again, just to, to get back to what my ancillary is not the enemy. Ancillary creates fans. I remember being at a, an advanced screening of Slumdog Millionaire at USC. And I figured out oh, college students, you know, whatever, you know, they don't know Danny Boyle. And I brought up, you know, Shallow Grave and uh, some of his earlier films that had not been, you know, big hits theatrically. And they, everybody raised their hand. They had seen these prior films. So it created an opportunity for that film really to break through and become the, the crossover hit that it was. We can have a discussion which film is, you know, why didn't that, but sometimes that just happens. Snatch was a huge hit theatrically after Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels was a failure because a lot of people rented it loved it, and were really primed to see the next film from that filmmaker. And that's home media, and, and I think in many cases, physical media, like the films may be out there and, and available on whatever streaming platform, but it's not the same as browsing as a, at a physical <laughs> physical location. Yeah, the problem with the streaming platforms is you're reliant on the, the algorithm that they decide what you like. And yeah, you say, I like this. And then they recommend something that's completely not related because they want to push you to see that film. You go to Vidiots and you talk to the clerk, I really love this film. They're going to tell you exactly what film you should rent next. And you're going to like it. Um, There's also something really, there is no comp for being able to pick something up and look at it. And the marketing, the way that the industry has sort of like crossover of 
marketing and algorithm has cut out so much of discovery. So with a movie theater, you can see a poster in a light box. You can see a description on a website. You can see a description in what would have been a newspaper and think, oh, that looks interesting. It is not like marketed specifically to you because of the bottom line. And in the video store in particular, for someone like me, when I was growing up, I was bringing home movies that were so not made for me. They were not made for me. They were not being marketed to me. But because I liked David Byrne's weird suit in Stop Making Sense, that became my favorite movie when I was 11. I liked Cher's crazy hair on the cover of the box art for Moonstruck. I didn't know who Cher was. I was 10. I mean, maybe I knew who she was as a singer, but like, but that became my favorite movie. But that movie was not made for a 10-year-old. But what that did was turn me into a film fan. And now look what I do for a living. My daughter is 10. Her favorite movie is American Werewolf in London. The movie is not made for her, but she loves that movie. And what it did was get her on a path to something that never would have been offered to her in a modern age of watching movies. And there is sort of a, you know, the algorithm has been sort of a form of dumbing down, right? I mean, like, you know, I also, as a filmmaker, I've had friends who basically say, hey, I, my film's on Netflix. And, you know, it's like throwing, it's throwing another suitcase on a, on a, on a raging forest fire. I mean, I, you know, it's just, it's just, you can't find it. Movie theaters, specifically, you know, art house theaters that are neighborhood based and have kind of the gentle hand of kind of curation or, you know, at least someone sort of considering, you know, bringing it to their audience thinking about what their audience would like and or also in this case Maggie's physical media you know these are ways in and it's so important it's so important for the filmmaker just for the filmmaker how do you break through the noise you know how do you get seen or heard how do you bubble up if you can't get a review and it's almost impossible to get a review now then you know you really count on the theaters the film festivals and the physical media it's so crazy to me watching the movie that you have the hub of cinema. You have so many great directors and, and screenwriters and producers, you know, coming through LA. And just the fact that there was, that Lemley was the place to see an art house film or an indie film or a foreign film that without Lemley, that would not have been available to people. Yeah, look, I don't, I certainly don't want to take sole credit and it's evolved over time. I mean, yeah, sure. In the, in the sixties, when my grandfather was just operating the Los Feliz theater, and, you know, a lot of the other art houses or what were art houses at that time had switched over to to showing porn. You know, it may have been the only place. Now we have, you know, then AFI started up with the festival and the cinema morphing into the Cinematheque. UCLA started doing film programming. And now you have the Video Theater and you have a lot of other. So I think Los Angeles actually has a really vibrant film scene. It's spread out. And obviously, if you're not living close to the Eagle or to one of these other venues, it, it makes life a little more difficult. But, you know, that's part of why we've pursued a strategy of putting a theater, you know, in various parts of the county so that someone who does live in the Santa Clarita Valley, you know, can see, you know, anime and they can see uh, bottoms and they can see all kinds of stuff that never made it out to that part of the world before. And I would say, like, from my perspective, the Lemley... When I moved to Los Angeles 25 years ago, 
I lived near a Lemley and the Lemley was what made up for the fact that I knew no one. I was from a like another universe moving here. But because I grew up in an age where the movie theater and the video store were the beating heart of the neighborhood, those were the first places I went to when I moved here not knowing anybody. I didn't have a job. I didn't know anybody. I just showed up. And I went to my local movie theater and I went to my local video store. And that's not a coincidence that I'm now on this podcast because my exposure to Lemley, my feelings about Los Angeles, the way that I started my life here led to the work that I do now. The same way that being in the video store in New York City as a little kid led me to California. I mean, it's all part of a thread, but those spaces are for some of us what a church would be or a synagogue or they are the center. Rafael is someone who's kind of came from maybe the outside of things. Obviously, you you love cinema and, and and movies and everything, but getting such a such a deep dive in this and getting really into the history of it with a, with a family who's been around for the whole thing. Was there anything that surprised you about it, or that a rabbit hole that uh, that you really didn't see coming? You know, what was really sort of exciting was the the directors and the, and the people who were so excited to talk to me and us about how the Lemley was sort of a their way in. And if it wasn't the Lemley Theater, then it was a theater like the Lemley Theater. You know, at the end of the day, you know, the fact that this family won the French Legion of Honor for how what they did to, you know, support the French New Wave, you know, how Truffaut and, and Agnes Varda and, and Bergman would come for lunch. These are sort of you know, again, this it's kind of astounding. But again, that's this sort of family ethos, this this family business. And I just kept, you know, look, I'm aware of the fact, I mean, look, here we are at the moment, you know, on still on strike, you know, fighting against these giant multinational corporate based shareholder, you know, answering companies and, and there's no human element in it. There's none. And we are essentially literally fighting for the human element. No, you can't use AI. No, you have to actually have writers and actors. And no, you can't scan our likeness and pay us a half a day. I don't mean to get into the strike stuff, but the point is that the fight is about the human element, right? And and maintaining that. And here's a theater. Um, here's a family that has been entirely about the human element. They have literally made things possible for film. I mean, Ava DuVernay, when she spoke to us, I mean, you know, she had won uh, Sundance and she called Greg and said, hey, give me some shows. And because of that, then she got New York. And, and you know, look, she was wildly talented. Um, you know, any th- number of things could have, would have happened. But that, yes, that actually being able to call and speak to a theater owner and then actually be able to figure out a way to get some traction, that's everything. And, you know, the ice face of this industry sometimes is so it's impossible to penetrate. So the fact that you could call, as I did, the Lemley Theater and then get Greg Lemley on the phone, essentially, and he would then talk to me about how to be able to show my movie. That's what really, you know, <laughs> there are all these big fancy things like all the names and stuff like that, the Hollywood element. But but the human element, again, is what what really continues to sort of keep me so grounded. That's why we can't get into AI programming. I know is is something that uh, people are people are talking about. And Raphael, for people who want to see the movie, where can they go? It's out on DVD from Kino Lower now. 
Yes, the film is on physical media and you can rent it at Idiots, <laughs> which is fantastic. The copies signed by the Lemleys and Raphael. Uh, <laughs> it's particularly special, right? So I, I um, uh, yes, it's also, it is on Amazon and we are continuing to kind of be in theaters. We we're at the Glendale Film Festival last night. We've got, we're going to be in Edmonton. We're going to be in Chicago. We're going to be, so it continues to be in theaters. We made a movie called Only in Theaters. And yeah, I, was like, I can't believe I missed it in theaters, but I'm glad it's, I'm glad it's coming back. So look up Only in Theaters to find out what, where the, the road shows going. Only at theaters.com, right? You can find it there. But most importantly, you know, the hope is that the film then leads anyone uh, seeing it to be reminded to go back to a theater. You know, go see a theater, at, at, you know, go see a movie at Lemley and Vidiots and know that you're also not just giving yourself a treat, which is to kind of be in a room with a bunch of other people enjoying a screen that's much bigger than you with no interruptions and, and where the laughs and the gasps and the, and the cries and, the, and the, all of that are, are amplified by the, by the fact that we're in a room together and, and the movie is just better. Popcorn's probably better than what you can make at home too, so... This has been the 198th episode of the Box Office Podcast. We're closing in on 200, guys. It feels very strange. But thank you to Greg Limley, Megan McKay, and Raphael Sparge, as well as Jesse Rifkin, my co-host for this episode. The Box Office Podcast is co-produced by Box Office Pro, the Box Office Company, and Record Edit Podcast. Check in next week for a breakdown of Taylor Swift's opening weekend. I know it's something that, uh, that everyone in the industry is really looking forward to her making a lot of money here so we'll be excited to see that come to fruition thanks once again and see you next week <laughs>